We're going to be looking at 1 Kings, uh, selections from chapter 1. We're starting a new series through the life of King Solomon. Uh, we're going to be primarily looking at his life in 1 Kings and, and focusing on where the book is speaking of him. And I trust that as we look at the life of Solomon, we'll be able to see Jesus and learn something of the gospel and something of the nature of God and his kingdom through it. The primary verses we're going to be looking at will be 38 to 40. This is the core text of the message this morning. So take a look at 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 38 to 40. This comes after David has given instructions for the way in which Solomon is to receive uh, the kingship and be coronated. Here's what we read happened. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There, Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. They blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. Amen. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading, the teaching, and the hearing of his word. This moment that we are at here in the history of Israel, it, it reminds me somewhat of the moment that this very nation was at, uh, at, the, at the time of George Washington's presidency. And um, as many of you know, I am a Canadian, so I'm sure you all know your American history much better than I do. But we, we know that George Washington was, was an eminent figure. He was monumental, and my, my, my wife and I often joke that everybody loves George Washington. No matter what debates about presidents there are, it seems everybody loves George Washington. But it was an interesting time for America, because the nation had gone from being a collection of colonies to fighting off a tyrannical empire, and for the first time, being unified, united into one nation, with George Washington, once being a general, now being the leader. And in his wisdom, George Washington did not want to turn this into a monarchy. He was willing to step down and knew that there was going to be a succession of power to someone else. And this was a pivotal time. You might ask, what comes next? And George Washington represents for the nation a forthcoming era of great hope. Think of it. The colonies now united. Britain gone, it's a chance for prosperity, to be at peace, to be a nation that can work together to build its own future. Incredible hope. The thought that from this foundation, what could we go on to become? And this is a very similar moment that we're at in the history of Israel. Israel had inherited the promised land, and the 12 tribes were ununified. There was no centralized leader. And we see in the book of Judges that this went terribly for the country. They were constantly being kicked to the down, ground by enemies. They were cons- constantly even at war with one another. Civil war between the different tribes. Uh, 
And the, they realized that if they were going to be a strong, unified nation, they needed a king. Still oppressed by enemies, they had King Saul, but then God's anointed, chosen king, David. And David was a man of war. You might think like a general like Washington, who fought battles for Israel, saw the enemies vanquished, and then came to sit on the very throne. And to bring the nation to peace for the first time. So you might imagine that by the end of David's life, there is that sense of hope in the nation. What will come next? Who will succeed David on the throne? Maybe we can finally have the peace and prosperity that the Lord has promised us. The key question is one of succession. And the succession has already been fraught with difficulty. David's oldest son, Ammon, he was murdered. And he was murdered for for abusing his sister. He was murdered by another son, Absalom. This son wanted the kingship for himself, and he incited a civil war against his own father, leading to his own death. David's third-born son, we don't know much about him, his name was Chiliab, but it seems he died as well. But God had not left it a mystery to David who was to succeed him on the throne. You see, the Lord had chosen his son Solomon to be the next leader in Israel. Now Solomon, he was the second-born son of Bathsheba. Do you remember Bathsheba? Bathsheba was a woman who, with whom David had an affair. And through that, it led to the murdering of her husband. David took her as his wife. And because of his sin, the child him and Bathsheba bore died. But then we read in 2 Samuel 12 that David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He went into her, lay with her, and she bore a son and called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. From infancy, the Lord loved Solomon. And the name Solomon means peace. God had revealed that the next ruler would not be a man of war like David, but a man of peace. We don't, we don't know this early in the story, but at the end of his life, David tells Solomon what the Lord had revealed to him. And we learn this in 1 Chronicles 22, verses 9 and 10. This is David talking to Solomon of what God told him. And this is what God told David. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies. For his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son and I will be his father. And I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. David's reign was marked by war. Solomon's would be marked by peace. And by all accounts, Solomon lived up to his name. We never see him like his older brothers, striving for power, fighting to get what he knew was his. He was a man of peace. And now at this point, David is old. He's so old that early on in 1 Kings 1, we see that he couldn't even keep himself warm. And the only way they could think of to keep him warm was to literally have a person huddled up next to him at all times to get at least some body heat. David is nearing the end. And so the question is ever more eminent. Who will sit on the throne? Who will the people follow? 
Will there be peace or more civil war? And the question of the kingship is a very important question in the history of Israel, as it is indeed at all times. Because think of this. What does a king represent? Okay? A king represents a promise of peace and prosperity. A king is seen to be a pathway to peace and prosperity. Why do people um, seek, seek to pick different political leaders? Because they think the person they've chosen is the best pathway to the flourishing of, the, of society, to the peace and prosperity we all desire. And so the king represents this promise. And a king is also to sit on a throne. What does a throne represent? A throne represents the seat of authority. The king comes to have an authority by which he can exercise his will and lead on that pathway to peace and prosperity. But the king requires, in order to fulfill this promise, he requires the allegiance of his people. He requires the obedience of his people. This is the case with nations. However, this is also the case with individuals. You see, each of our hearts is like a throne. And there are many different kings that want to sit on the throne of our hearts. Oftentimes these are outside of us. And the promise is that if we will give our hearts, then we will get the happiness that we want. Sometimes this is with one you love, a, a boyfriend or even a spouse, might be someone that you just think, if, if, if I give myself to them, they will love me in such a way that I will finally be fulfilled. It might be some people commit themselves to political leaders or political ideologies that if I give myself to this cause, then I will be able to see the world that I desire. Some people give their hearts to, to business leaders or self-help gurus that say, if you live like I live, you'll be healthy and happy. Many candidates vying for the throne of our hearts. But I think that for most of us, the primary candidate vying for the throne of our hearts is ourselves. Because most of us think that we know best what will be best for us. We know what we need to do in order to be happy. We know what will conduce to our personal flourishing. And our culture encourages us in this. Our culture says that you need to be your authentic self. That you need to do what makes you happy. That you need to consider yourself first because no one else should be able to tell you how to live. You should be the only one on the throne of your heart. But the radical truth that we see in the scriptures is that not even we ourselves are fit to sit on the throne of our own hearts. Only one is qualified to be on the throne of the human heart. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only when he sits on the throne of your heart that you will be on the pathway to true flourishing, to true spiritual peace and spiritual prosperity. And perhaps you're thinking, you're like, okay, this way, this was a sermon about Solomon. Oh, how are you getting to all these spiritual things from what happened in the nation of Israel? Well, we do this because this is how God intends the life of Solomon to be considered by us. We read from Matthew 12 earlier where Jesus directly compares himself to a king who is greater than the king of Solomon. One who is wiser. One who is more glorious. That is, Solomon's kingship was meant to prefigure and say something to us about what Jesus' kingship was going to be like. 
And not just Solomon in particular, but the role of the king in general was always meant to come to fruition in the life of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what the angel told Mary when he met her in Luke chapter 1? Speaking of Jesus who was going to be born to her, he said that he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. David's throne, the one that different people want to sit on in succession, is a throne that was meant ultimately for the Lord Jesus Christ. But Christ's reign was not going to be over a political or national kingdom, but a kingdom that's exercised in the hearts of men, administered in the life of his church. Therefore, it is right for us to see Jesus in Solomon. It's right to apply these historical and political realities of the kingdom of Israel to the contemporary spiritual realities of the kingdom of Christ. And I'm saying this up front because this whole series about Solomon is going to be eminently about Jesus. Because these things speak of Christ. And Solomon's reign, more than any other, more than David's, Solomon's reign speaks of the wisdom and wealth of Christ's kingdom. It speaks of the peace and prosperity of Christ's kingdom. The glory of Christ's kingdom. And so we are going to see these pictures that happen in history, but speak to spiritual reality now. And so as we look at this question this morning of who is going to sit on the throne of David in his succession, we need to be asking ourselves, who is sitting on the throne of my heart? We're going to look at the rise of the false king, the rise of the true king, and our response to the true king. So let's first learn from the rise of the false king. What is this power that wants to vie for authority? Take a look at verse 5. If you're in 1 Kings, uh, take a look at verse 5. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man. He was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is in Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's son, and all the royal officials of Judah. What's the picture here we're getting of Adonijah? What does this tell us about false kings, even ones that vie for our hearts? Well, what we see here is that actually in many ways, Adonijah has a lot going for himself. He's not presented as this most horrible person. He's ambitious. He he has a will to do what he wants. He's resourceful. He, He has a whole group about him helping him. Um, he goes unopposed. And this is a sad state. Even his father, David, he, it says that David didn't discipline him. Parents, you don't want your children to turn out like Adonijah. So make sure you discipline better than David. Uh, he was also charming. He was handsome. He would have been well-loved by the people. And he was even supported by key leaders in the military. 
key leaders in the religious institution, and key leaders in the royal household. Furthermore, he was actually the next in line for the throne. Adonijah, in many ways, seemed eminently qualified for this post. But here was his core failing. Right at the start of verse 5, the core failing of Adonijah is where we're told that he exalted himself, saying, I will be king. You see, Adonijah didn't care about the will of God. He cared about his own will to power. I will be king. And this sort of prideful, self-exalting exercise of human will is one of the deepest problems of humanity. This is really the heart behind mankind's fall into sin in the Garden of Eden. What did the the serpent say to to Eve in Genesis 3-4? He said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. There was a promise given to Adam and Eve that if they exercised their own will, in defiance of God's will, to take for themselves wisdom and knowledge, then they would be like God. That was the defiant self-exaltation that led to the fall of mankind. Adam and Eve said, I will be like God. Just like how Adonijah says, I will be king. Adam and Eve considered that they knew better than God what was going to be to their best interest. They thought this wisdom, this God-likeness was going to be the best thing for their happiness. And so against God's will, they exalted their own will to take what had been forbidden to them. Both of these rejected the command of God. And Adonijah knew that God had chosen Solomon. Even though it wasn't public knowledge, it seems the family knew. Adonijah intentionally, we're told, did not invite Solomon or his mother Bathsheba to the royal feast. And actually, Bathsheba was worried that they would probably be killed by Adonijah. Adonijah exalted himself against God's rightful ruler. And there are many ways that I think you and I do this where we can be people that seek to exalt ourselves, saying, I will have this. I will do that. Seeking to rule ourselves in a way that God has not had for us to live. I think of things like this, where we say, I will use my money how I want. I don't need to be generous. No one can tell me what I can do with my pocketbook. I can keep it for me, keep increasing my standard of living without end. We think, I will. I I will pursue whatever pleasure I want in whatever way I want. If If I desire sexual pleasure through electronic means, I can do what I want. Maybe I can have whatever relationships I want. If I want to be in relationship romantically with someone of my same gender, I will have that. If I want to be in relationship with someone who's outside of the household of faith, I will date whoever I want. Or maybe it's, I will treat others however I want. I have a right to be angry against that person. I do not need to forgive that person. I will retain and withhold 
my forgiveness. Because these are the things that will be best for me. This is what will give me pleasure. This is what will bring me prosperity in life when I am calling the shots. But the problem here is, when we exalt ourselves to think that we know best how to direct and rule our own lives, is that this always leads to death. Not necessarily physical death, but the death of, a death while living. This is what happened when Adam and Eve sinned. Death entered the world. This is what we're going to see in the next uh, chapter happens to Adonijah. He also receives death. And you see, the problem is, is that when we think we know best how to govern our own lives, we are taking into our own hands something that wasn't designed for us. We were designed to be directed by God. And what this is like, um, it's like, if you could imagine, like a three-year-old, a young child who decides that they are wise enough and skilled enough to, to drive their parents' vehicles. You know, just, just imagine if you have a little kid, they're like, I'm going to drive the truck. Not realizing that this vehicle was not designed for them to control it. The pedals are too far away. They can't see over the dash. They, they don't have the cognitive faculties to be able to steer and make the right sorts of decisions. Right? We, because we recognize that vehicles are made for more mature people. Vehicles are made to be designed by people with the cognitive and physical abilities to, to use those powerful vehicles properly. And the difference between an adult and a child is far smaller than the difference between us and the God of the universe. Okay, so when we think that we know best how to drive our lives, how to control all our passions and pleasures, it's like us telling God, I'm wiser than you. I know better than you, and I will have the control. Not recognizing that your soul is so valuable, your soul is so noble, that the only one truly qualified to care for your soul is God. Not you and I. It's too precious to let us seek to control by our own human wisdom. And yet somehow we so consistently think that we know better than God what will make us happy. And we cast off his laws, which is in, effect, is in, a, set, um, which is in a way casting off God's rule. And God has not intended us to be the lords of our own hearts, just like he didn't intend for Adonijah to be the true king of Israel. Because Solomon was the Lord's appointed king. We know God chose Solomon. And this, this continues... God's history of this subversive election. We know God loves choosing the younger and the unexpected. Remember how he chose Jacob over Esau. He chose Joseph over his brothers. He chose David over his older brothers. And now he's choosing Solomon over his older brothers. God chose Solomon. But the question at hand again is, how would God's choice be revealed to the nation? How, how would this choice be presented to be received by the people. Well, what happens first is that there are advocates that come in to speak on Solomon's behalf. Solomon doesn't even go himself. Um, this is what happens in verses 11 to 27. What happens in this section is that the prophet Nathan and Solomon's mother Bathsheba is they talk to one another and say, what is happening? Adonijah is going against what the Lord had intended. And so they make a plan to go 
talk to David about it. And so first Bathsheba goes to David and she says, says in, in, um, in effect to David, didn't you promise me that Solomon was going to be the king? Now your other son Adonijah is sacrificing and feasting, trying to make himself king. You should do something about this. And then right on the heels, they swap. And Nathan comes in, and he says the same thing. He says, did, did you say Adonijah should be king? I think you said Solomon should be king. And so now the ball is in David's court. What is David going to do now that he hears the news? Nathan's con- concluding remark to David in verse 27 is this. He says, Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king? And you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him? He's saying, you need to tell everybody who is the rightful heir to the throne. The nation needs to be told. And in this, David is now roused to decisive action. Take a look with me at verse 28. We're going to read this passage here of David's response to this confrontation. Verse 28. Then David answered, call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, and as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my lord King David live forever. King David said, call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, take with you the servants of the Lord, and have Solomon ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon, and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada answered with the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my lord the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my lord the king, even so may he be with Solomon, and make his throne greater than the throne of my lord, King David. And so just as David instructs here, David sees to it that Solomon will receive the coronation and be declared to be the true king. And I want us to look closely and learn from these elements of Solomon's coronation, this royal coronation, and we'll see what they tell us after we look at them. So look at verse 38. First, there's the royal entrance. Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. Gihon is a place that's right outside the walls of Jerusalem. And Solomon comes riding on King David's mule. This is a sign of royal honor and dignity. If we think back to the book of Esther, do you remember when evil Haman, he he thought the king was going to honor him and the king said, what would basically be the most honoring thing I could do for someone? And Haman says, ah, let that person ride on the royal horse through the streets. Not, not knowing that his enemy, Mordecai, was going to be the one given that honor. 
But in these cultures, to ride on the king's steed was a sign of incredible royal dignity and honor. And notice Solomon doesn't ride in on a horse, the animal of war, but he rides in on a mule, the animal representing peace. And he comes accompanied by the three offices in the Old Testament, a prophet, a priest, and a kingly representative. And there he receives a royal anointing. So after the royal entrance, there's a royal anointing. We're told in verse 39, there Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. The anointing here, which comes from the prophet primarily, but also the priest, was an emblem of God's approval of this person, their right to take up the office, but also that God would gift and grace that person with everything necessary to carry out their task. There's a royal anointing. And then there's a royal declaration. We're told they blew the trumpet and all the people said, long live Solomon. A loud, a public announcement of the king. And then we see a royal response in verse 40, where all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. That is, the people honor their king with praise and rejoicing. And then lastly, a royal ascension. Solomon, in verse 46, it said, Solomon sits on the throne. Sitting on the throne is the height of the coronation. If you remember, the throne is the seat of power. The throne represents authority. And to sit on it is called the king's session. His sitting on the throne. And is the fittest emblem of his kingship. And in this way, to Israel, in the sight of all the people, the question was definitively answered. Who will sit on the throne? Solomon. Adonijah quickly loses his followers. He doesn't fight it. Solomon is the king accepted by the people. In David's decisive action, it was declared and displayed that Solomon was to be the one to usher this nation on the precipice of hope into a season of unparalleled peace and prosperity. But remember what the reign and ascension of Solomon speaks of. It speaks to us of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these elements of Solomon's coronation we can see also in the life of Christ. Think of the royal entrance. Jesus also, he rode into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. He rode in lowly. He rode in on the symbol of peace. Jesus also received a royal anointing. In Acts 10.38 we're told that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. God anointed Jesus at his baptism when the Holy Spirit himself descended on him like a dove. The, the oil was just a picture of the reality, which is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit himself descended upon Jesus in power, thoroughly furnishing him, declaring him to be the one that all people should follow, the one fit for the work. And there was also that royal declaration that day, that voice from heaven of the Father, the Creator, saying, This is my beloved Son. In Him I am well pleased. God declared the royal prerogatives of Jesus Christ. And there was also that royal response 
when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the people cried out in praise and rejoicing, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They were looking to Jesus as the next king of Israel, like Solomon. However, unlike Solomon, instead of enthroning Jesus and installing him as king, these same crowds, within the very same week, they murdered Jesus. The one they were praising, instead of enthroning, they killed. The cheering turned to jeering to scoffing, to mockery. You see, Jesus was not like Adonijah. Jesus did not exalt himself and his own will to power to be king. But exactly the opposite. Jesus made himself low. Jesus took the form of a servant. He was found in human form, born in human likeness. He washed the feet of his disciples. He sat with sinners, with the poor, with the people who were marginalized on the outskirts of society. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a stable with animals. There was not even room for him in the inn. Jesus relinquished his own will and gave himself entirely to the will of God. He said, it's my food to do the will of him who sent me. And he was willing to seek God's will Not to say, I will, even at the greatest personal cost. And the evening before his crucifixion, we see Jesus in the garden, in anguish because he knows the suffering that's awaiting him. Not just pain and torture, but that he was going to be separated. And because of the sin on him, the Father would turn and forsake him for a time. And he says, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Utter resignation to the will of God. We're told in Hebrews that he entrusted himself to a faithful creator in doing good. Jesus was not like Adonijah. And he didn't will himself to the power of rule or the power of the throne. He made himself low. And on the cross... As Jesus bled, naked, tortured, suffering, his plan of rule, the Lord's plan for his son to rule, seemed to be defeated. The people were not declaring him king anymore. But God had a different plan for declaring the rights and worth of Jesus. You see, God's declaration was that in three days, Jesus Christ would be raised from the dead. Showing that the power of death had no hold on him. To be one who perfectly fulfilled and obeyed the will of God, the Lord raised him up from death, declaring him to be the ever-living king, the one who will never die again. And even more than that, God raised the Lord Jesus up to heaven. That's that final royal enthronement where Jesus, in the victory from the grave, is raised up to sit on the throne at God's very right hand, even now, ruling from heaven until that time when all the nations will be made a footstool for his feet. Until that day when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. David knew there was a time To reveal the king. And we're told in the book of Galatians that in the fullness of time, 
at just the right time, God sent the Son, born of woman, born under the law, to bear the curse of the law. And to be raised from the dead, that this would be God's final declaration, publicly, to the world, in a real human person, in actual human history, to say, this is the one I've chosen. This is the true king. Every other idol, every other leader must bow and serve him. The rulers of this world, they gather, they scoff against the Lord's call. They scoff against the Lord's anointed. But God has said, this is my son, and he will have the inheritance of the nations. Jesus is king, and he is reigning now. And this message has not been hidden. These things weren't done in a corner. The truth of this reality has spread throughout the whole globe. It went from one little city in Jerusalem, and it's spreading, and has spread throughout the world, and is continually going, and it's come to you and to me. We have heard this news about Jesus being raised up to be the true king. We've all heard it. So there's only one question that remains. How will we respond? If you've been told that Jesus is the true king, how are you going to respond to that? Are you going to get off the throne of your heart and bow the knee to Jesus or keep seeking to control your own life? We're promised in Revelation 1-7 that Jesus is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. When you and I finish our time in this world, we will see Jesus. And we won't just see the Jesus as a baby in a manger, but we're going to see an exalted, glorious, all-powerful king. And what are we going to say on that day? Will our response be like Adonijah, who fought against Solomon's kingship? And we're told in verse 49 that all the guests of Adonijah, everyone who supported the false king, who willed himself to rule, they trembled and rose, and each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon. When you realize that your whole life you chose to sit on the throne of your heart, Instead of allowing Jesus his rightful place in directing our behavior, our beliefs. When we put trust in ourselves and our, and our own wisdom instead of Jesus. When you realize how wrong that was on the final day. There will be nothing, no response fitting but to fear. And to tremble that you have so rebelliously defied the true king. Only fear and trembling at that point. But it doesn't need to be this way. Because you see, there were people that accepted Solomon's rule. They weren't fearing and trembling. The exact opposite. The people that followed Solomon were rejoicing with pipes and harps and loud cries that could be heard for miles around. And so that can be for everyone that now chooses to accept the rule of Jesus. To pledge allegiance to him. To commit our lives to following him. To being servants in his kingdom. 
The result of this is, is not a morose life. It's not a burdensome life. It's a free life as a servant of the true king. Christ is the only one that can bring true inner peace and true inner prosperity of soul, riches of grace, riches of glory, and true joy that can't fade away or be stolen. Nothing on earth can promise you this. Your own self can't promise you this because we cannot make peace with our own consciences. We cannot make peace with God with ourselves. Peace with God comes through the justifying work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, there is nothing more freeing and nothing more delightful than to say, God, I give up. It's time for me to get off the throne of my heart and to think that I will live the life I want to live regardless of what you want. I recognize that I'm foolish. I recognize that I, in many ways, make a mess of my life and the things that I pursue just come to oppress me. God, would you be the king of my life? I pledge you my allegiance. I give you my service. I give you my trust as the only one that I know will bring me peace with God. The only one that will make me rich on the inside. To bow the knee to Jesus is the greatest thing to do. When when we're confronted with the reality of the true king, this is the only way to respond. And if the coronation of this little earthly king brought joy, how much more joy should it bring us to know that Jesus is king? Because Jesus is good and kind. He's gentle and generous, perfectly just, perfectly righteous, altogether loving, altogether merciful. There's great joy to let him be on the throne because he rules with wisdom, power, and love. He's an awesome God. So we give him our allegiance. We give him the affection of our hearts and we give him the obedience of all our actions. It's the only way to live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you that you have declared to us the news of Jesus. We praise and thank you that the gospel has gone forth to the nations and that we have got to hear this good news. Lord, we ask that you will empower us and turn our hearts to respond to this news with faith, to believe that Jesus is king, to bow our knee to Jesus as king. Lord, that we would turn away from ruling our own lives, from seeking our own will, and seek you and your will above all. Lord, would you cause us to come to a low place today, but that we would see Jesus lifted high. Lord, would it be our great desire to see your kingdom come and your will be done on this earth, and would you start with us? Would we be your faithful kingdom citizens from today? For those here that have not bowed their knee to Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you help them to bow their knee to you, to surrender to you and to say, Jesus, you are the one I want to direct my life. You have my heart. Lord, work these truths deeper into each one of us, even this day. And we pray all these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. This last song of response is a song that sings of the preciousness of Jesus. And notice each stanza ends with the refrain that declares and praises him as our king. So let's see the precious 
goodness of Jesus, but also the glorious kingship of Jesus. And let this song be the prayer of your own heart to declare to Jesus how precious and beautiful he is as our great king. Let's stand and sing together.